Firstly, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all of you. My name is David Scales. I am the host of Surf Splendor. Thrilled to be delivering our third annual Christmas week show. Our first being in 2013. Um, it's crazy how much time has passed and how many episodes we've done um, since the start of this. I just, I still sit kind of thinking about this podcast as a side project, yet it's steadily crept into my priority project each week for the past 120 weeks or however many it's been. Um, So I'll need to mentally acknowledge its role in my life and cut something else out soon so that we can really nurture the full potential that this thing has because... It is something substantial and people dig it. And obviously I honor that and it's really exceeded my expectations. So I appreciate all the feedback um, that you guys give and, and contributions and emails and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, let's get into today's show. Today's show is with William Finnegan. Finnegan's been an important figure contributing to surfing for the past 30 years or so, mainly as a writer, but really also as a discoverer and an explorer. Professionally, he's been staff writer at The New Yorker since 1987, the author of five books, including his most recent, Barbarian Days, which is the main subject of our conversation here today. As a journalist, he's mainly written about um, apartheid, drug wars, border conflicts, that sort of thing. But Barbarian Days is a memoir, a far departure from his journalistic reporting. Finnegan is a lifelong surfer, and the book details his journey through adolescence, adulthood, and even later adulthood um, as a surfer, exploring the world and how surfing fits into relationships, work, and just one's life. So I loved the book, and I was very honored that William graciously accepted my invite to be a guest on this show. We recorded this conversation in Los Angeles at the kitchen table of an Airbnb that he had rented while he was here visiting his family. So enjoy the show. Ah, well, uh, I never had any intention of writing about surfing. Uh, maybe when I was a little kid here in Southern California, I used to write, you know, short stories about, you know, time travel back to when it wasn't crowded. And, you know, it'd just be me and my friend and our modern surfboards with the, you know, the Chumash Indians in mm. Malibu and that kind of stuff. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's like, you know... It's like surfing, at least in Southern California, you're sort of um, like born nostalgic. You know, I was a nine-year-old nostalgic. We all were all uh, raised on photos of, you know, Rincon in 1947, 10 totally. feet, nobody out, that kind of thing. And we hadn't missed it by much. This was the early 60s. We hadn't missed it by that much. Um, and, and yet it was gone. Right. And everywhere was crowded, and um, relatively speaking. And so I wrote about surfing when I was little, um, as these sort of fantasy short stories. Um, but once I um, 
started writing more self-consciously, more seriously. I was I wrote poetry, and then I started writing fiction. I ended up doing a MFA in fiction, and um, surfing just receded. I just wasn't interested at all in writing about surfing. Surfing as a subject to write about, yeah. not surfing as a role in your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah they really sort of diverged. Sure. Uh, I saw myself as a writer, and surfer just kind of came with my upbringing okay. and 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 I I quit what I would call quit surfing any number of times I just was into something else really like, yeah not not a conscious thing like I'm quitting I mean I didn't like get rid of my boards or anything but um, like the first time I thought I did that was around my 16th birthday I was up till that point it was like surfing first 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 and I was you know it, I was 15 and, and I'd been surfing constantly for years and it was you know mm. I could surf pretty well, and it was you know for my age, and and then I finally slacked off um, a bit and um, probably plateaued um, at sixteen when I just got interested in other things. You know, I had a car suddenly, and I needed a job to, to you know support the car, and right. it took away time from surfing. And I was interested in literature and 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 got interested in traveling for its own sake. Um, uh, did a cross country trip um, when I was sixteen with my friend and. Rambled all over and then surfed a couple times in you know Mexico and Florida places we fetched up where there were waves, borrowed boards, but it wasn't surfing wasn't like front and center as it had been sure through my adolescence up to then, um, and it went like that in sort of waves. I went to college in Santa Cruz um, so I could surf all the time, but it was really surfing didn't run my life. I sort of surfed when it, I had time when I felt like when there were waves I could see it but I didn't have any friends that I surfed with there wasn't anybody else that you see that surfed that I knew mm-hmm. I've since met people I just met a guy in Bali the other day who was in my class at UC Santa Cruz but How about I, never, that? I never knew him now, he lives in Bali now but um, I didn't know anybody so I, I just I kind of I didn't my life didn't run on the ocean's schedule all the time and, right. and that was on and off through my late teens and there were periods I mean before the end of my first year of college I, uh, my family lived in Honolulu at that time, and I was back and forth to Hawaii, and, and so I surfed in Hawaii a lot. And we lived there when I was in junior high. And, uh, and I finally surfed Honolulu Bay for the first time. I, I was 18 or 19, 18, I think. I was a freshman in college, and, and it just, that was it. I dropped out of college, actually, and moved to Maui. <laughs> I just, I got to live for this wave. Yeah. And so I did that for a while. Um, Documented in the book a little bit. Yeah, I wrote yeah. about that in the book. So, so just but kind of surfing kind of went in and out. It was this constant thing in my life, but it wasn't something I talked about or thought about. It wasn't how I saw myself. It was just what I did. Sure. And um, and that kind of continued through college and graduate school, um, where I sort of went through periods when I was at the coast and surfing all the time, and then I'd go live in London for a while or live in Montana or just. Places where something was going on that I wanted to do, I didn't really worry about it. I, I, you know, eventually get down to Morocco and surf. I live in England, but I wasn't sort of con- I never. There's a way in which I kept it unconscious. Sure. And and I wrote about completely different things. And and uh, then I had a job on the railroad in California, and uh, as a brakeman on the coast, and I surfed a lot then. Um, so I lived on the coast and 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 uh, could kind of keep an eye on the waves from my job. Um, and then I was working on a novel that was set on the railroad. That might have had some surfing in it, actually, that novel, but still not not sort of dominant. I just didn't see surfing as a literary subject or right. as sort of my self-conception very much. Um, but when I was 
23, 24, I finished graduate school and I had uh, a good job I could save some money from. This railroad job was well paid. Uh, I just sort of automatically, I mean really without thinking, turned and thought, well, I'm saving some money now. It's time to go, to go to South Seas, to do the endless summer thing, to just disappear and chase waves for years. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, I didn't think of myself as a surfer. I, I had this kind of idea of this mandatory, gigantic trip, which I had to take mm -hmm. if I ever had the money. Sure. And um, and so with a friend, I, and it was a, I had a good friend, also a writer named Brian DeSalvatore, um, who I um, proposed, you know, let's let's go. You know, he had a job also with saving some money, and and he felt the same way. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, we just have to. You know, I was twenty four, twenty five. He was pushing thirty, and we just have to. You know, it's the time. So we left in in uh, nineteen seventy eight, and and I was on the road nearly four years, uh, um, mostly in the southern hemisphere and uh, South Sea, you know, South Pacific. Australia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Southern Africa, etc. Looking for waves mm -hmm. and working day jobs, but um, obviously this was like surf immersion. I just you know right. surfing my brains out in all these places and exploring, exploring, trying to find you know waves that nobody'd surfed before. And, totally. And, and we found a few and um, surfing some underground spots, you know, in mm -hmm. Indonesia and all over. Um, I was in South Africa quite a long time. Um, and so in some way, surfing, there was just no describing oneself except as, in, in large part, a surfer. This is what I'm living for. This is yeah. how I'm living. But it, it, it had this um, kind of shadowy existence for me for the longest time. And, and again, when I started writing for a living, which was in those years, especially after I lived in South Africa, became a political journalist, started freelancing, um, I uh, still didn't think for a second about writing about surfing. It was years later that I finally kind of turned a corner and started considering it. So this memoir was a long time in the gestation. Totally. And even once I started writing about surfing, it was another 20-some years before I got it together. Yeah. I know I've heard you talk about it as being almost like um, coming out of the closet as a surfer. Mm -hmm. And the way that I interpreted that was just kind of in the literary world that maybe you know people would frown upon or look at it just as like, Jeff Spicoli, you yeah. know, you're a burnout. And so, yeah. um, how did those people receive the book, you know, mm -hmm. and did you actually experience mm -hmm. any of that Spicoli stereotype or looking down their nose at you sort of a thing? Well, um, not that I've noticed. No, not yet. Um, I mean, I sort of need to now pivot back to my <laughs> Yeah. Usual life as a as a political writer for the New Yorker. I mean, I'm allowed to do a lot of different things. This politics are very very broadly defined. Um, I'm not going to write cultural pieces and and pretty much everything um, that interests me seems to interest my editors and it works out all right. So I'm not out there covering elections. Um, but um, but actually that that process was the the book wasn't the maybe it's the climax of this long process of sort of coming out of the closet as a surfer um, and writer um, as a writer of surfs whatever but um, but it started I was living in San Francisco um, uh, and and freelancing and working on my first published book and um, 
I sold a first short political piece to the New Yorker, just sent it over the transom, and uh, they bought it and ran it. And somebody in the editor's office said, uh, ah, this is a good time, you know, if you, if you want to write something longer, you know, you've got the editor's attention right now. So I proposed something, and I thought I had five minutes to come up with an idea, and I, I, I didn't have an idea, and I was sort of fumbling. And and, and, and all I could think of was, uh, how, how about a profile of this guy I was then surfing with, living at Ocean Beach in San Francisco, surfing with this uh, big wave uh, writer called Mark Reniker, doctor, um, really interesting guy. Totally. And... and um, and just crazy big wave surfer, and and Ocean Beach is this intense place to surf, and yeah. um, and so I proposed that piece kind of almost spontaneously, and and they I, they bought it, they gave me the assignment, and that was when I was confronted with, oh my gosh, what have I done? And right, and because I was writing about politics then, and that took that piece took me seven years to write. Right, missed a few deadlines, um, and. Um, not that I just, you know, sat on my ass those seven years. I actually, during that time, I moved to New York and, and joined the staff at the New Yorker and published three books during that seven years and um, met a lot, a lot of magazine pieces, but a lot of political opinion columns. I was writing um, the opinion column at the front for the New Yorker quite a lot. And um, so I was engaged in all these sort of policy debates, sure. US foreign policy, you know, drug war policy, economic development, all this stuff. Um, and, and I did, that's when I started thinking, do I really want to publish a big piece about my surfing life? Because it was a profile of Mark, but, but I was heavily involved. I mean, I'm in the water with him the whole time. And mm-hmm. he was kind of an evangelist, you know. Mm-hmm. You got to surf more, you got to surf more, you got to take it more seriously. You don't take surfing seriously enough. What do you mean you're only going to, you, know, you got, need another board, you need a gun, you need to, mm-hmm. and I was always kind of saying, you know, I'll surf like when it suits me. And, but he, he did kind of give me more and more. He didn't, I didn't buy a gun. But then he would loan me a gun on a right. big day. So it was this thing, you know, like getting me into bigger and bigger ways. So he just wanted somebody to go out with him. You know? Yeah, he was always looking for somebody to go out with him, yeah. and he kind of knew once limits. I mean, it was twenty feet plus. He didn't, you know, yeah. hassle me too much. But um, it was a sort of the dynamic between us was part of the story. It was a big part of the story, totally. And so I was really going to be saying this is what I a lot of what I've done with my life is this. I mean, it was around that time I remember looking at a surf mag. Uh, it's in the early eighties, um, and and the editors had picked out you know top ten waves in the world, and you know little little photo yeah. know, sketches of these these 10 spots. And I looked down the list and I had surfed nine of them. Wow. And the only one I hadn't surfed was a place in Peru that I hadn't even heard of and seems not to be actually that good. Chicama? Uh, yeah, Chicama. Yeah. You know, long left. Good yeah. good wave, I'm sure. But the other nine were really, you know, and some of them were places I'd, like Honolulu Bay, places I'd kind of lived at and lived for. Kira in Australia, I'd spent a long, long time there. Right. Jeffries in South Africa, yeah. I'd spent a lot of time there. And and the nicest thing about that list in a way for me was that um, the best wave I had ever served was not on the list because they didn't know about it. It was in the South Pacific, so that was that was nice to see. Yeah, uh, and to think about. Right. But um, but it was shocking to look at the list. And go, oh my God! If anybody asked, you know, what did you do with your life? I was probably thirty by then. You know, what did you do with your twenties? Well, it seems I was chasing waves the whole time. Um, so. Um, I took forever to finish that piece, and 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 finally turned it in. And, and I was also worried that, that Mark wouldn't like it, the protagonist, you know, uh, Renneker, the subject. And and I was right; he he didn't like it. Right. And um, so that was another inhibition. But 
um, I was worried that yeah, that people would say, oh, you know, what? Just you know, you're just especially these other policy wonks that I would have been you know sort of engaged in 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 a kind of policy debate with um, over whatever subject would say, oh, you're just you know, you're a dumb surfer. We don't have to take you seriously. Totally. Um, which didn't had never happened. I mean, I nobody seemed to care. So yeah, I never heard anything about it. But um, so that was that piece, and then that led kind of indirectly to this book. Although obviously many years that piece ran in 92 so yeah. 23 years later finally the book appears and um, and so I haven't worried about it the same way since sure but the difficulty of sort of getting sticking to writing about surfing or writing about my own life you know a memoir um, was the same in that um, the alternation in my work life is between these pretty heavy subjects. I uh, used to do a lot of war reporting, um, and that comes under the heading of politics, you know, sort of conflict, power, yeah. and justice. These are the subjects that have um, uh, occupied me um, most of my uh, career. And um, and they're almost all, you know, stories that just, they don't write themselves, but they force you to do them now, you know, something urgent. There's There's a war, there's a famine, there's a, humanitarian crisis I mean I, I wrote about the Balkans I covered wars in Central America and, and Mozambique Sudan Somalia all these uh, places that were blowing up at the time and uh, I wrote a book about Mozambique the civil war there um, and so those subjects demand to be written about you know people are dying people are uh, suffering and, and and surfing just felt so la-di-da so you know light and, and fluffy and who cares mm-hmm. um, I mean I cared but why would anyone else care that feeling so, yeah. so I working on this book I had that problem too I'd, I'd get into it and it was, it was in many ways fun to write but um, I feel like I was neglecting real work and, sure and so I kept sort of working on it for a few months and then thinking I've got to get back to you know something important or my day job which you know, it's also like needing to make a living. Yeah. So um, those are some of the reasons why it took so long. Well, it's been, I've heard nothing but praise uh, in the surf community among people who have read it. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, that work at the magazines and then just listeners of this podcast have reached out and said that they loved it and recommended oh, it and all that sort of thing. So, um, so that's good. I want to ask you a couple of questions about Mark Renneker, actually. Okay. Um, because it surprised me that that was actually the most interesting part of the book to me. Like I would have thought that some of the more exotic travel would have appealed to me more because mm-hmm. I've spent time in San Francisco and Ocean Beach and it's like that's kind of my backyard. I thought I'd be more intrigued by discovering Cloudbreak or something like that, you know. But it might have just been the character of Mark himself mm-hmm. that's so compelling. Mm-hmm. Um the character of Ocean Beach, I think, is very compelling as well, just as a surf spot. I could probably relate to trying to surf waves like that more than I can surfing perfect reef passes. Um, are you and Mark still friends? Yeah, we're still in touch. I haven't um, talked to him lately, but um, we've been, we get together every now and then when he's in New York. Or, okay. And uh, yeah, we're quite friendly. You mentioned. That he didn't like that New Yorker piece, which, by the way, I'll post a link uh, for listeners. I'll post a link to that piece, the two-part piece. Okay. It's online, obviously. Um, 
if they'd like to read it or if they haven't read it yet. But have you, you mentioned he didn't like that piece originally. Did he ever come around to it? And do you know how he feels about his portrayal in the book? No and no. Okay. Um, <laughs> he hasn't said anything about the book. And uh, I, mean, I sort of warned him the book was coming. And and uh, the portrait of him in the book is is um, somewhat and, and, and significantly altered. Um, I mean, different from the magazine profile. Um, but um, no, he never, he hated the magazine piece. It was actually a two-part piece. And, um, you know, like, it was long, and so it was kind of like a multi... It would, you know, first part one week, second part the next week. And and he said that the first part um, was fine, but he felt like the other shoe was going to drop in the second part, and it did, as far as he was concerned, and he really disliked it. Um, and he, we went back and forth about it, and he had a lot to say, and um, he never withdrew his criticisms that I could recall. I mean, we sort of buried the hatchet, but... Sure. But... Um, uh, it wasn't because he said, yeah, the piece is okay, really. Right. He never said that. Okay. Um, there's a lot of compelling characters. Mark's not the only one in right. the book. But um, how have the others responded to the book at all? Have you? Um, I'm curious also, do you allow people to look at the the book before it gets published? And then also, like... Does that jeopardize the integrity of the work in a certain way? You know, what's that process like as a writer? Well, um, it would jeopardize the integrity. Yes, to show people um, sections about them. For yeah. instance. I mean, I plenty of writers do that. I'm sure um, of memoir and what have you. But in journalism, that's pretty much not done. Totally. And um, and that's sort of where I live and and have um, spent my work life and. Um, but um, for fact-checking, you go over things with people, um, right down to every little detail. So you might as well read it to them, but okay. sort of on principle, you don't. Um, and, um, and I did a lot of fact-checking with this. And, um, and it's different. I mean, memoir is quite different from journalism um, because, you know, with journalism, you show up with your business card i'm here to interview you and 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 you know it's all this is on the record it's sort mm-hmm. of understood usually between people and and memoir is the opposite you just suddenly i mean your whole life's off the record yeah know, and and you decide unilaterally to to start writing and sharing all these sort of unguarded moments with with friends and loved ones often you know many years past and and Sort of arrogating that right to yourself, this license to depict, um, is really a tricky thing to do. Um, so the fact checking is more than fact checking, and it's not the same. Mm. It's you know I'm, I'm including this, I'm including this. Is that okay? And and then if it's not, why not? And let's talk it through. And lots of negotiation like that with old friends and yeah, you know frenemies. I mean, not everybody you're on great terms with, or still in touch with. Whatever. Totally. And so there were some very tricky things, and and, and ah, at least one instance where um, I, without going into the specifics, got into a sort of fundamental disagreement with somebody about what had happened. Um, you know, like whether I was there after going through it and going through it and going through it. Until I thought we had it. Then there was this announcement. Oh, but one other thing, you weren't there. <laughs> well, how is that possible? I mean, we've. <laughs> 
we've gone through this exhaustively over some weeks, you know. Yeah. And now I wasn't there. Yeah. And then, and the reasons, and I, I believe I was there. In fact, I was there. Sure. But, um, but in this was this other person's moment, and I was more a witness to it. And it was a profound moment in their life, and and, and it's important to the book and the story of the book, and. And and so I just had to sort of I thought no I'm not going to just you know do my version of it or our version of it as we'd worked it out um, I'm going to have to take into account this final um, errant judgment you know that oh by the way you weren't there and so I sort of smudged the, like exactly when we got there and when maybe this was the second or third you know it just um, yeah I sort of acceded to what I didn't think was factually correct, but just was emotionally correct or, or totally. just was not my call in a way. Interesting. So so memoir is quite, I mean, in a hard-headed normal piece of journalism, sorry you don't remember it this way, but this is how it was, and I'm sure, and so therefore I'm going with, well, in, this, in the case of memoir where you've, you know, people's lives, you know, who are close to you, mm-hmm. um, you're suddenly putting them in a book um, yeah. that is not a simple you, you can't do that unapologetically totally you can't do that without considering their feelings at every turn interesting so very interesting tell me about the process of writing the book did you have journals that you had maintained from your travels that you were able to pull from or photographs even and yeah I, I kept really extensive journals when I was younger less and less so now so now writing for a living makes you you know think I'm not getting paid for this and, right you know, <laughs> I don't need to fill these books full of my every thought and observation um, but when I was younger I, I kept really good journals and and actually a couple of my companions like major characters in the book um, kept better journals kept incredible journals and I went back to them my first girlfriend whom I you know ran away to Maui with um, and um, and my friend Brian DeSalvatore, who I went to the South Seas with, both of them, and it's like a certain amount of disarray and despair at some point, I would I'd turn to them and say, don't you have like journals from Samoa or something, please? And, and, and each of them very kindly said, yeah, and, and like let me see um, pages from their journals, heavily redacted. I assume all the sure. blacked out stuff was like complaints about me. Like, <laughs> you're living together in very close quarters. Absolutely. You yeah. know, camping somewhere. And um, but wonderful stuff. I mean, much better observed, I thought, than than any of my um, journals. And and so I'd say, ah, oh, I remember this now, can I use this? And we'd sort of you know so little bits and pieces of other people's recollections and journals. But um, letters, um, I was a prolific letter writer. Um, much of my life and and I was able to recover um, some key um, correspondence um, the biggest one I mean tons of letters to Brian for instance and, and to other people um, that I got back and so I could see ah here's what it was because there were times when I really wasn't writing anything down um, I remember being shocked by these extensive descriptions of surfing Jeffries in 1980 1981 uh, I was there two winters and um and I thought, wow, and, and I, I sort of believed every word of it. I didn't seem to be exaggerating, but I hadn't written this down, and I'd actually forgotten a lot of it. Yeah. And the kind of astoundingness of surfing, you know, big, clean um, Jeffries with half a dozen people out day after day. I sort of couldn't believe I did it. I mean, right. when you look at it now, but at the time, of course, it just seemed like 
it was really good. It was kind of intimidating. The rides were amazingly long. There was hardly anybody there, but the hardly anybody there part almost took for granted. You know, oh, on the right. weekends these guys come from Port Elizabeth and it gets crowded, like twenty guys in the water, sure, or something. And but you don't realize how this is just a moment, and it's going to soon pass, and this and this this um, tiny village is going to come become a bustling beach town mm-hmm. full of foreigners year round, and it's going to be crowded. So some of the letters I got back were astounding that way. But the most important cache of letters by far, actually, was um, completely unexpected. Um, uh, a childhood friend, Dominic Mastropolito, who lives here in L.A., lives in Malibu. Um, he was my best friend, and my family moved to Honolulu when I was 13. And, and I wrote constantly to Dominic back on the mainland, you know, my adventures in Hawaii, or you know, what it was like there. And and he's not the kind of person who I'd expect to keep old letters. Um, and and I did. We were there when I was thirteen and fourteen, and I I don't know. Must have written fifty or eighty letters to him. These big wow. fat letters. And um, and suddenly this box. I mean, out of the blue, this box turns up on my doorstep in New York um, from Dominic, saying, "Found these old letters. You know, thought you might be interested." And I'd been mulling this book. Um, this is more than ten years ago. Did he and, know that? No, I had not told him I might write a memoir, not at all. And um, no, I mean, I'd published that Mark Reniker profile, which had led to a discussion with my publisher and then a kind of half-hearted commitment to a surf memoir. But I hadn't told anybody about it. I don't think I'd even taken an advance. I just was kind of semi-committed to it. Um, I was working busy on another book. And, um, and then this big cache of letters came from Dominic and and they were so rich you know I mean written by a 13 year old 14 year old they, yeah. they weren't uh, literature but um, they were incredibly detailed and and some things in those I thought were exaggerated you know mm. no way the current carried us to Cocoa Head you can't get there from you know that's yeah the, and I'd have to sort of allow for you know and what a stand up barrel at that spot I want you know yeah but Ninety percent of them, or more, were, were pretty modest and 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 very sort of close to the bone, embarrassing, um, you know, unself conscious, and um, and they just formed the the backbone of what became the first chapter. I decided I'm going to write this book, and it's going to start here, not like when I was born or first time I served or whatever, but but here, starting at this school in this junior high school in Honolulu, and and because I had these very vivid descriptions from these letters, and it just they formed and and the way the book structure works. The beginning, the first chapter takes place in Hawaii in the mid '60s, and then it kind of jumps back in time to California before that when I was small. And um, but it was those letters that that made me think this is where this book has to start. I can just feel it. Yeah. Um, wow. What a gift. Yeah. Yeah. So I was lucky with that. I also did lots of just basic research into you know public sources and you know if I got this right is that really what was going on in Lahaina at this point in sure 71 or whatever and um, just sort of basic journalistic research and um, I always struggle with I think most people do probably when you are on a vacation or on a surf trip or whatever how much of it do you document versus how much of it do you just try to absorb the experience of yeah, yeah. and it's easier to illustrate through like photography if you're going to be yeah. shooting video on a trip would you rather be looking through the viewfinder the whole time yeah. or actually like witnessing it yeah. and i feel like it's somewhat true with writing to a lesser extent as well where you have to just like extract yourself from the situation 
recount the waves that you caught or whatever and try to put it on paper, it mm. pulls you out of it a little mm. bit. And mm. so it's a delicate balance, I think, to try to find, yeah. you know. Especially with photography, um, totally. which has become so ubiquitous. It, totally. And um, and I was never interested in it. Um, I My dad used to take pictures when I was small. And I remember I had this crazy ongoing argument with him when I was, I don't know, 13, 14, 15. Um, he'd come down to the beach and, you know, take pictures of my friends and me at Rincon or, or, or somewhere. And, and we were sort of happy to have them, but, um, they were not surf magazine quality. We didn't surf well enough and, and the ways, and he just, he didn't know what, you know, they just weren't yeah. publishable quality, but they were fun to have. And, um, and he would say, I see you always with your nose in these surf magazines, uh, you know, write an article. And, and and publish it and because I was always writing and, and I'd say I've got nothing to write about and anyway they don't care about writing all they care about is photos and we don't have the photos yeah we do I'll take the pictures that's easy no dad that's not easy he'd say you're just scared to, of rejection you know you're afraid to write for publication which was true I was scared of rejection and um, but it was this kind of standoff which I was so frustrated because he didn't understand it really is the photos yeah. what they wanted the photos and they you'd have to like move to the North Shore and hook up with some top surfers and spend all your time and then get very lucky to get even one photo in the magazines. It's not that easy. And, the, and I'll take little pictures of us surfing, you know, Rincon or Sacus or somewhere. We're embarrassed. I'd look at them, you know, they were neat to see. And then you think, in the mags? Not a chance, you know? And so it was this sort of funny ongoing yeah. argument. And so I just really wasn't into photos. And But of course, everybody loves photos of themselves surfing. Sure. It's this intense thing, in fact, to get, you know, mm -hmm. oh, how do I look? You know, because you want to you want to surf with some style, but you don't really know if you are. And then you get a picture and you say, oops, I'm not. Or, you know, oh, I don't look <laughs> so bad. Rarely are you, by the way. Yeah, I don't look so bad or whatever it is. And so it was kind of a loaded thing. And um, and when it came to this book, they the publisher said, have you got any photos? And, and I thought, ah, do we need photos for this book? Well, not really. We'll just do a, you know, we won't do color reproductions or anything, but it'd be nice to have a few. So I started digging through old boxes of, uh, photos and finding these crummy prints, you know, I mean, that just managed to survive. And none of the photos you can't find that, that um, I remember the couple, the only couple of surf photos I, I could have cared about. Um, somebody I knew, hardly knew, um, got a couple of relatively great shots of me in Honolulu when I was probably 19 and and uh, pretty big, good, and I was you know sort of peaking as a surfer in some ways at that point, mm -hmm. and um, and they were wonderful pictures. And he sort of got my address as I climbed past him on the cliff, and and they showed up. They were black and white, but they were these wonderful photos. And I thought, ah, and I sort of treasured them, you know. Yeah. And because you so rarely get, I mean, much more so now. I mean, there are sort of cameras everywhere now, exactly. cell phone camera, I mean, everything. But at that time, not right. And and I didn't own a camera, and so. Um, uh, and I lost them. I mean, oh, in some no. move between houses in New York, like they didn't turn up, and I felt quite bad. I didn't want to admit myself how much I was sorry I didn't have those photos anymore. Yeah. It would have been like in late 80s in New York. Okay. Um, but I did find that, um, first I had, I did a Q&A with Surfer's Journal, and, and they said, how about, you got any photos? And that's when I first like dug through old boxes. This is maybe four or five years ago. And uh, this thick, this memoir was coming, you know, it was, was a ways away, but it was, it was kind of based on how uh, you're writing this book. Right. And uh, and I dug up some pretty good ones. Um, I mean, enough to sort of put together to to illustrate a Q and A, 
but just by luck. I mean, you yeah. know, four years of travel, I had, you know, a <laughs> short stack of fry. Right. But here's three from Indonesia, and they all show Indonesian 79 and me surfing or totally. whatever. So they, they kind of, and, and then you sort of look at the photos enough, they, they begin to represent the period. Ah, you know, mm-hmm. this is how it was. Well, wait a second. This is just one photo from four months. It's, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that you're forgetting that's outside the frame here. Totally. The photos are so important to surfing. Really? And 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 yet, I really didn't concentrate on them and, and didn't have much. But you know what? I started to actually get some better photos. In my middle age, you know, late middle age, I was probably 50 by the time I started doing this, um, I started going way back when um, my friend Brian and I... Um, found Tavarua in Fiji and, and camped there. There was no, nobody there um, and just dropped off by fishermen and, and camping and surfing the way they now call restaurants. Um, but at the time, of course, it was just a nameless, incredible reef break. There was no restaurant. <laughs> there was no nothing. It was like a fish drying rack was the only structure on the island. I slept on the fish drying rack. And... Um, so that was this, that was the great wave that yeah. that I'd surfed that I thought was better than anything on on the surf mags list um, on the, on the right day it's it's you know a truly transcendent wave anyway um, we were very disappointed some years later to, I mean when we were the very first guys to surf it I should mention there were uh, at least two guys off a yacht who had surfed it before we had okay. um, so it was just maybe a couple people knew and then and then some more guys came off yachts Australians Americans that year as we were camping that surf season that um, winter it was 78 um, uh, so by the end of that season we reckoned there were nine of us I think who knew about it and we were all of course had a blood vow never to tell anybody and you know that didn't work out. So years later, bang, we discover there's you know this these guys are building a resort and all that. We're very disappointed, and um, and yet I got over my disappointment at some point. I was dying to surf it again, and um, and 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 my sort of moral objections to the privatization of the waves. And they discovered Cloudbreak. We didn't know Cloudbreak was out there, um, and so then. Yeah, they've got exclusive rights to these two great reef breaks, and and uh, which is, as I say, sort of politically indefensible to me, and and sort of morally obnoxious. But you know, my surf frenzy overcame my objections to the point that I started going there as a paying guest. Sure, starting in two thousand two, so mm-hmm. I think for about eight years till it opened up and got crowded. Mm-hmm. Um, I just went there. Every year, or more than once, and I just went there a lot, and and was really got really into cloud break, a more consistent wave than, than the island, and um, I had great days on the island too. But it's relatively fickle, and and um, just really got to love cloud break. It's, it's a not it's very far from a perfect wave, you know. Cloud break, sure. this big shifty, messy thing, yeah, but that gets great, and and everything in between, and mm-hmm. really really fun wave, I think. But suddenly there are these pro photographers around. Yeah. You know, oh, Bill, I got a pic of you. And it's this incredible picture. It's like properly framed. You know, it's in focus. I look good. The wave looks incredible, you know. So in my 50s, I finally started to get a couple okay. of decent surf pictures of myself. That's really funny. Yeah. Um, about surf magazines, do you subscribe to any of the magazines now? I do. I subscribe to Surfer and Surfer's Journal and Surfing. Um, and I look at the Aussie mags. And, and there's a bunch of online mags. You know, there are. Beach Grit and on and on that are fun. Um, okay. So, yeah, all too much. 
Okay, good. Interesting. Yeah. Do you? What are your thoughts on surf journalism? I mean, as a surfer and as a journalist, uh-huh. I'm, I would be curious to hear your opinions because, like, what are where have surf journalists succeeded and where have they failed? Do you think? Well, it's a it's a f- kind of funny little field. I haven't really. I, I wrote one piece for Surfer um, about the opening up of Tabarua. Um, my sort of last trip there was after the government had revoked their exclusivity um, agreement and, and it was opened up really to, supposedly to local surfers. That was the idea. Sure. Um, but, um, or to people in general. But it was local surfers, Fijian surfers, who'd pushed for this thing and made it happen. Yeah. I'm convinced after having interviewed a lot of people about okay. it. Um, there's a lot of other stories out there about who, who pushed this thing, but that's what I ended up thinking. Um, and um, and yet it was really opened up to surf tour operators. That's who came in. And some of them Fijian, um, but a lot of them not. And um, and so I wrote about that um, and for Surfer, and and it was kind of normal journalism, and it was it was fun to do. Um, but I got a lot of pushback from from some of the people in the piece who were sort of outraged that I talked to everybody. But that's of course what you do as a journalist. But it felt a little bit like, yeah, but not in surf world, you don't. Um, you're like on somebody's agenda. Yeah. Um, if you're in a controversial area, which you're usually not. I mean, it's usually, you know, profile some surf star or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, or uh, the, you know, um, story of a surf trip or, or you know, most surf, um, most articles in the surf mags are, are, are pretty soft. And, and some of them are really good. You know, they're, they're, you know, it's a great story of a trip. It's well-written or, or, I mean, Surfer's Journal concentrates a lot on surf history. And, and yeah. some of that's very solidly written and, and well put together. But in general, the, the, the monthlies, um, it's very, very light stuff. And, and I think the advertisers have a lot of input um, and... You, I mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Um, but you, you never see anything the least bit investigative. You never see anything negative about any of the big advertisers. Um, you don't. Um, I don't know. You just don't see very lively, um, uh, opinionated, dissenting, you know, you dissonant right. um, sort of work. And so I assume that's because they're advertiser driven. And the people I know worked at those magazines who talked to me about it generally have confirmed that. Um, So it's not... And when I've teased people and said, you know, why don't you look into, you know, sweatshop conditions and production of wetsuits from this company or that company, I've just been told, you must be joking. That's never going to happen. So um, I'm not... This is not news that... No, um, not at all. ...that the surf... Uh, press is is not um, the most sort of dynamic and independent um, kind of media. Um, that said, then there's these you know these odd bods who pop up and, and are irreverent. And and I remember when I first got to Australia in 1979, I lived there for a while. And um, Tracks, the yep. Australian surf magazine, was in a sort of heyday. It wasn't glossy. It was a big news print tabloid and um and it was raunchy and irreverent and funny and and you know you got the feeling that that if any advertiser had anything to say what they would publish is you know fuck rip curl or whoever has anything yeah. to say 
Um, I'm not sure that's true, um, but uh, that's sure how it read and how mm-hmm. it felt. And, and actually, my friend Brian and I did a series of pieces for them. Yeah, that's because right. because we liked you know. So it's not true that I haven't. I did. We did that stuff too. I forgot. Um, but that didn't feel like writing for the Surf Mag. Yeah, yeah. Because it was we were able to. We kind of came at it as these as these Americans. Americans were like widely hated, you know, sure. seppos and all that. And so we'd just be these obnoxious Americans that everybody could hate. And, and, and in fact, we wrote under our real names, right. which was a way of going incognito because we were both working under fake names okay. the on the Gold Coast. And I had this guy I was working with, the surfer, come to me and say, did you see this fucking thing in tracks? And I said, what fucking thing? Said, these fucking Americans, you know. And it was these seppos taking the piss out of Australian surfing, talking about how lame it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, surfing in Australia was just so mainstream and so lame. And he was, you know, say people are really annoyed. I said, ooh, yeah, mm, those guys. And, you know, good, not the name he knew me under. Right. <laughs> so That's we hilarious. just stayed under the radar with that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but that was, you know, last time I saw tracks, it was just, just another industry shill. You know, it was just a glossy, boring, um, no longer distinctive magazine. Yeah. So I guess I'm not painting a very flattering picture of the surf press, but... No, but that's what it is. I mean, you're not revealing any new information. That's Mm. kind of how everybody accepts it. Everybody who's in the know um, is well aware of those details. I mean, you mentioned Beach Grit, and I remember the story of, um, you know, Derek Riley backing Chaz Smith, the writer, when he wrote something about Mick Fanning yeah. using a racial slur at some yeah. point, And then Rip Curl was pulling out advertising yeah. to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And Derek stood behind Chaz and said, yeah. that's fine. We'll yeah. live without that income. Yeah. They almost weren't able to. Yeah. But consequently, Stab has established itself as, you know, somebody who does have an opinion, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and Derek sense stab with Beach Grit. Yeah, you know? yeah, and that makes those things feel distinctly different, very and, much so. and fresh. And um, yeah, I did an interview with Derek recently, and had a lot of back and forth with him. And I don't know all the backstories. You never know really who's making a living how, but um, but he seemed very intent on on calling calling it as he saw it. Yeah, and and that's not generally the case. Very yeah, very and, true. Um, I was thinking of, uh, I mean, I don't know Lewis Samuels very well, right. but I did an interview with him recently, which was fun, and and I've been amused over the years by him, and when he pops up, and it's just absolutely um, irrele- you know, irreverent, excuse me, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just really, you know, he's very tough on um, sort of bottom-tier pros on the tour, and, and, and it's... Um, you know, it's not nice, but it's funny. And who is yeah. your loyalty to? Is it to, is it to these guys that you that you're gonna bro down with on the tour, or is yeah. it to the readers? Are you there to amuse the readers, and and sort of hold surfing to a a certain standard of candor and 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 um kind of rough um give and take or not? Yeah. And 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 Lewis seemed to be somebody who was obviously you know out front and funny and, and just going to do it. Yeah. And then and then gets you know drummed out of out of surf journalism. Of course. And then drafted back in because he's exciting and drummed kicked out back out. Him. Yeah. But is I'm not a huge fan of negativity or being mean to people for the sake of being mean. But I am a huge fan of comedy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and his comedy seems to 
Like the benefit of his comedy outweighs being mean to Kai Otten, you know, in, yeah. in my opinion. Well, that's that's the hard trade-off, you know, yeah. especially when it's a small world. Yeah, it and is. And you know Kai Otten, and he's a nice guy. Totally. And he serves like ten Kai. times better than you do. Totally. Et cetera, et cetera. But he doesn't serve as well as, you know. Right. Um, where will that interview end up, or where has it ended up? That was for Surfline. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was I didn't a, even see it. Yeah, it was a couple of months ago. They, they put it in an odd format um, so that it's not... I mean, it's really, it's, it's, uh, I can't describe it well, but some advertiser kind of sponsors the whole thing. Yeah. And it's there to click on, and it's kind of uh, resplendent. I mean, it's unusually lush and well-produced, and um, with a bunch of photos in between. I've seen, I've seen what you're talking about, where you scroll down, and then things go sideways, and there might be a video, and. Yes. Yeah. They do this occasionally, and they're all kind of lush productions, but they're not actually archived properly. Right. So if you go down through, like if you, I think maybe, um, search my name, it wouldn't come up, or it's not not in surf news, it doesn't come up. I mean, when I went to look at it later, check on something, I couldn't find it, and I asked. Okay. Um, Marks at Surfline, where is that thing? Oh, you know, the way it works, it's hard to find once it's not up. Like, it's up for a few days or a week, and, and then it's it's buried. If you know where to find it, it's still there. But Okay, um, I'll find it. For listeners, I'll find it and post okay. a link in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, it's a pretty good interview. I'd love to see that, yeah. yeah. Okay, so speaking of surf journalism, mm-hmm. why do you subscribe to those magazines then? I mean, if, if the pieces are soft, what are you getting out of them as a surfer? I'm not reading them that much. Just I'm thumbing through the photos every month, kind pretty of? Pretty much, and and picking up bits and pieces. I have to actually tell myself, you know, go through this magazine now, and then throw it away. Because they'll back up. Well, they, they stack up, and you just you end up leafing through surf magazines when you got other stuff to do. Totally. Um, so it's not, because so I just kind of, it's partly to sort of stay in touch with something. Also, there's there's, you know, some incredible photos, and... And bits and pieces that are are fun to know or or good to know. Yeah. Um, stuff from I don't know, world of the pros or or just kind of where the attention of surfing is shifting toward. And um, and hell, I mean, there might be like a wetsuit buyer's guide, and I need a wetsuit, you know. True. So so here's my thought, and I'm curious to hear your reflection on this. Mm-hmm. Is that um, I want all those things as well. Mm-hmm. But the surf magazine isn't the best way for me to get that information any longer. You can get it online probably better. Well, on Instagram, like the, the quality of photos that I see in the magazine, which would be the best selling point, as you've mentioned, I see those on Instagram now all day, every day, and up to the minute. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, oh, Pipeline was awesome this morning. Cool. Now I'm seeing who got the best waves. Yeah. And so obviously those photos get printed as well um, in the magazine, but it's kind of like... I'm also overwhelmed by all the imagery. There's more incredible imagery now than there's ever been before, and I actually don't need any additional imagery, and I definitely don't need, again, to waste more time thumbing through this thing that I'm ultimately going to throw out. And so while I want to support the industry and while I've grown up loving the magazines, it's gotten to the point where it's not even worth the $11 a year subscription yeah. fee to yeah. have this thing show up and take up space in my house. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and like kind of more to the point is the journalism isn't very good. I think that would be the saving grace, which is if there was something interesting to read long format, yeah. that would be a reason to buy it that Instagram doesn't offer me. 
Yep. And that, and I actually don't want to read a long form piece on my computer screen. I'd yeah. prefer to have it in yeah. print. Um, and I actually not, prefer the images also in print. Do you? Not necessarily for the quality, but because I spend my whole life in front of a computer screen, right? Writing and, totally. and a lot of reading. I have to do just it's easier online. And so to be able to like lean back and have a mag in your hand and look at the thing and flip it and look at the thing and not be at the computer screen, right, is a pleasure. Yeah. And but it does feel if 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 you're paying attention, like if you're on Instagram and you're uh, uh, or even just looking at you know Surfline every day and and other websites and you've already it's all very old news mm-hmm. uh, in the mag three months later yeah um and and you feel that and, and that's true for the newspaper i mean i yeah the sure times 20 times a day and 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 the next day's paper feels like it's two weeks old right um so there's that problem but i do prefer to like have a chance to sit and look mm-hmm. um at something in my hands as opposed to on the screen mm-hmm. just because uh, i'm so sick of the screen yeah what Stories in surfing would you like to see be told? Talking about journalism kind of avoids a lot of the important stuff. Well, the thing that I'm interested in that I don't see in the mags, but I don't really expect to see in the mags either, is the um, is the kind of inflection points in the in the business of surfing. Um, and I'm not fascinated by the business of surfing at all. Um, I mean, I'm one of these people who sort of wish it would all wither, and and surfing would become uncool and, and fade as a you know uh, mass sport, um, so it get get less crowded. Totally. <laughs> now I know that's not going to happen. Never. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I'm as in this fallen world we find ourselves in. I'm interested in in how the uh, surf industry interacts with surf media and that little story you just told about Chaz Smith and Derek Riley and Rip Curl for instance that kind of stuff really interests me me too I mean that's this is politics this is power mm-hmm. this is um, uh, what's behind what you see and that's what I want to read about but of course I'm probably not going to read about that in a surf mag Right. Um, and instead, you know, you're getting editorially, um, I mean, there'll often off be a kind of like editor's column at the front um, about that issue or, um, you know, the theme of the issue or whatever the editor's um, going to sound off on. And the sort of tone of those and, and the changes as the editors change and, and um, is... It's not all edifying, but but it's um, often interesting to me. You mm-hmm. know, who is editing this magazine? And is this really his? It's always a him. Is this really his um, free space to say what he wants? And, and what are the what are the constraints on what he's going to say? And why yeah. is he saying this? And how yeah. well is he saying it? And and all the rest of it. I mean, that that space will interest me. And then not it also kind of infuriate me. And um, but. Um, once um, I'm into the body of the magazine, I I just don't expect any kind of editorial independence, any, right. any sense of it, and that's always what I'm looking for. Is you know, tell me about things you know that I don't know. Yeah, you know, and I don't mean what John John Florence had for breakfast. I mean, um, you know, what's um, driving your world? What can you not say? What what you know? The you know there's all this emphasis on on the North Shore this time of year, 
and the Volcom house and the this house and the that house and all this kind of brawling down stuff that's yeah. corporate it's, it's all got a corporate um, aspect and structure yeah and, and I sort of want to hear about that I want the sort of dirt on that you know who actually yeah. owns this company um, what's the the character of this company who calls the shots in all this you know it's not a bunch of guys hanging out mm-hmm. it's a bunch of employees I mm-hmm. assume of this company and maybe they're buddies in some kind of like status structure there but I, I want to know things that they're not going to tell me yeah and um, so when you, if I was an editor of one of those magazines, if you say, okay, what are your ideas for stories? I'd be hard pressed to go, you know, oh, yeah, we can take a trip to Chile, you know. Yeah. But um, to um, get at stuff that I want to read, mm-hmm. I'm not sure they're institutionally capable of it. Well, that was the most compelling part about Chas Smith's book. Mm-hmm. Did you read that book I didn't. on the North Shore? I didn't. Okay. It's... All about that, actually. It takes really? place, yeah, on the North Shore with a you lot know of. One of the reasons I didn't, I, I read an excerpt and I yeah. read some reviews, and and it suggested that, that it was this, you know, uh, I'm going to tell the truth about the North Shore and what a rough, you know, mm-hmm. low life place it is. Yeah, I spent a lot of time there and partly grew up in Hawaii, and I thought I already know all that. Mm. I didn't realize that it was this um, specific stories of like. You know, Graham Stapleberg getting punched out in the Billabong house because he didn't sponsor a local Hawaiian in the whatever. Like, it's it's really interesting. Really interesting Eddie Rothman stories uh-huh, in there. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, his style of writing is um, not for everyone, you know. And I'm actually not a huge fan of the style, but the subject matter mm-hmm. is so interesting that I really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, I will pick it up and read it. It yeah. sounds more in my... Um wheelhouse than I realized. I'd recommend it. Um, what you're talking about, though, the where I'm more most interested, the space that I'm most interested in to see those relationships unfold is mm-hmm. the WSL uh-huh. and their relationships with sponsors mm-hmm. and lack thereof and trying to bring in you know outside brands, Samsung and Jeep and all mm-hmm. this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they've had limited success with it. They've had some really good success and then they've had, you know, like... Um, Formerly, you know, uh, sponsored events this year. Now we're seeing without a sponsor, where it's just the Jeffrey Jeffrey's Bay Open. Not it's yeah. no longer the Billabong yeah. Open or yeah. whatever. So, yeah, with the magazines, I definitely agree. Like, there's interesting stories there, but with the WSL, it's almost like they're taking it to a new level. There's more viewership now with YouTube and everything else, to where the numbers are bigger than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. There's more potential to. Um, exploit i guess and um yeah and i think they're again trying to grow it and expand it in different avenues yeah you know um do you watch any professional surfing contests i do when when there's a wsl contest um and the waves are good yeah and it's streaming i'm one of those people you know, who should be working and is instead sitting there staring at a lull well, <laughs> in Tahiti. Totally. Yeah, I mean, really, really addictive and, and strange. I mean, and someone will come in, you know, um, and say, what are you looking at? Um, just a flat ocean and a couple of guys sitting there. It, it's a lull, you know. I'm, I'm exactly. it, it feels completely normal to me, even though I should be working. To sit there and, and stare because we gotta wait because totally. it hasn't been a set yet, but it's really good. And, yeah, and these guys are ripping, and it's gonna you know there's probably gonna be something transcendent, right? You know, any minute or maybe in an hour, but yeah. like watching surfing, and um, 
So it's pretty, you know, addictive. Although I can't imagine non-surfers sitting there. Heck no. I mean, these are long lulls that, that seem like nothing to us. Oh, it's only five minutes. Another good set. Yeah. Five minutes on TV of nothing. And then the guys are trying to fill the time. The anchors aren't exactly mesmerizing. And um, and then half the time they cut away and miss the next set. And, right. Well, interestingly about your book, something that I thought about um, often was that is true when you're what you just explained, but it's even more true with travel where you spend 99% of your time traveling and yeah. lugging bags through airports yeah. and in cars, endless you know hours spent on the road, then sitting through the lulls in the lineup to catch a wave. Mm. And I think... Um, in surf videos, they'll show you know a thirty second intro of going through the airport and driving down the road and all mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and then three minute section of them surfing in mm-hmm. West Africa or whatever. And it's on like, the best day they got exactly. Yeah. But it's like no, it's it's so different than that. Like yeah. people don't really know, yeah. you know, how much time is spent sitting yeah. in the tent camping. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really kind of interesting. Um, among the WSL stuff and those, or maybe not even WSL, but just in the media that you're absorbing, I'm just curious who your favorite surfers are nowadays. Mm, nobody very original. I mean, I keep uh, hoping that, that Kelly's going to win another contest or two. Wouldn't that be nice? And and every now and then, he like in WA earlier this year, yeah. um, at the box, he was good, but they moved over to, to main break Margaret's and... And and he like pulled a ten yeah. on this big right and 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 I just thought oh here you go you know like those are high points for me you I'm, see I'm those old, moments you know? of glory with Kelly yeah, yeah. but unfortunately they're not every heat like they yeah. once were yeah you know? he has really down heats now which I don't remember I mean I was I didn't follow him that closely through his competitive career yeah I just always admired him I mean, who doesn't of course um, really really admired his surfing and and almost think of him as the um, and now, of course, John John Florence is, is, you know, you can't take your eyes off him. I can't anyway. Right. Um, and, um, and when these guys, you know, uh, flake out and, and don't advance in the contest, I usually lose interest. Um, there's nobody quite as, as exciting to watch. Um, yeah. Maybe if, if Dane Reynolds is in or, or if Joel Parkinson is on fire or, you know, somebody super stylish like that. Yeah. Um, but guys just... Hucking huge airs, um, Felipe Toledo's pretty amazing, but but not that exciting for me to watch. Same with Medina. It's it's sort of shocking to see Slater go flat and like not get any waves and, and yeah. not be able to command the ocean. Is you know I watched him enough. I, I once watched a Pipe Masters from the beach in the '90s that he completely dominated from beginning to end, and he mm-hmm. won in the final against Sunny Garcia. And and he really seemed to be telling the ocean what to do yeah that thing he had totally seems to have uh, perhaps expired well yeah maybe so and I think it's reflective of what I was talking about at the beginning about um, surfing plays different roles in people's lives as you Mm -hmm. evolve and have Mm -hmm. other interests and Mm -hmm. he seems to have a lot of outside interests at Mm -hmm. this point other than like outside of competitive surfing anyways Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. business interests Mm -hmm. Um, so it is what it is he wants to do a big wave pool exactly (laughs) yeah Exactly. Or um, he, you know, he paddles off to some some other um, peak that's mm-hmm. outside the contest area because it's and he's right. It's it's better over there, right? And maybe they actually shift over and, and judge the waves and, and, yeah. and let him do it. But he's really on the edge of of not 
being into it. Shows up late. Doesn't, yeah, you know, exactly. Nothing to show up for the contest. Right. Goes down the beach and serves his brains out in you know, yeah. Portugal last year. And, and then is like too beat to, I mean, he's, yeah. he's not into the contest. And exactly. he does seem to have, he hasn't, doesn't seem to have lost much in the way of, you know, ability. And, not at all. And and even beyond athletic ability, and this is something I, I try to explain sometimes to non, with this book, which was really written for general readers, right. um, uh, lots of people who don't surf or have anything to do with surfing or know anything about it, um, read it and ask me questions about it, and, and I'm talking with them, and I try to explain that, that you know, this huge part of surfing is, isn't, it's not athletics, it's not like gymnastics or something that, where you're just doing it in a space it's it's the ocean and it's reading the ocean and half the time you'll see kelly slater or john florence or somebody do some miraculous thing on a wave and the question is not like sometimes but not usually like how did he keep his balance it's how did he know Mm -hmm. how did he know the wave was going to do that and you know put himself there and Mm -hmm. go that way and then to it's this. It's this understanding. It's it's the wave reading as much as the wave writing at any given point. Absolutely. And and Slater seems to have that just out in his own. Yeah. Um, on his own level. Um, yeah. And I would argue John John is following suit in that respect. Yeah, and has the same, just um, kind of superhuman knowledge. Exactly. And you think, okay, pipe. You grew up there. That's going to happen. But it happens other places too. Totally. And and it's. And you can, you know, as a surfer, you can tell by these little, you know, his his hand hangs down, mm-hmm. where his hand ought to be up. Mm-hmm. Anybody's freaking at that moment, except he's not. And you can mm-hmm. tell from tiny bits of body language that, that he's in some, you know, I've already understood this, and I've already understood what's going to happen. Yep. And I actually don't need to have my hands up, either for balance or to sort of self-defense whatever what anyone else would do yeah and and the the dropped hands say it's an obvious example um that's why he's on the cover of the surf magazine exactly and a non-surf will look and say what's going on in this picture look at his hands yeah i mean what does he how does he understand that that he's he's got this yeah for instance and you know some gigantic tahitian right and he's just very mm-hmm. quiet body, hands down, and, and that's what's so beautiful. Yeah, and it's and it's in his head, you know, right? So, well, that spiritual connection with the ocean, I think, is what makes surfing unique and magic for us. And you talked about in your early life, get, getting away from surfing, but always in the back of your head, feeling this need and knowing that you were going to have to go on this surf journey at some point, <laughs> yeah. which. I don't think that exists for snowboarders or for skateboarders. And they might argue that it does to an extent, but I think that there's surfing is unique. And it's not that I'm just, you know, emotionally tied to surfing and I feel that this is better than that. And where you can argue about music that way, maybe like this band better than that band. I think surfing truly is unique in that respect where there is this spiritual thing. You are in nature you're giving, you're taking from nature, but you're also giving to nature. And there's this reciprocal kind of relationship. And um, I don't know, it's hard to put into words, you know? Yeah, sometimes I think that mountaineers, the couple of okay. very serious mountaineers sure. I've ever met, um, who've, they've got places they want to climb that they haven't been, you know, continents they haven't been to. And, and, and then that climb is something 
really heavy and, and yeah. it has to be very well considered and and you get into a very intimate relationship with that rock, that right. mountain that, you know, it's it sounds familiar to me. Totally. You know? And I don't know if a kid grows up mountaineering and says, by God, I've got to <laughs> climb this place before I die. But I, I think there is some of that. I think Yvonne Chouinard did, yeah. you know, like, yeah. as one the, example. He's the paragon, yeah. And and I, in fact, was just having lunch with an old friend who serves in, was more serious as a mountaineer, and he was talking about Chouinard and and what he means to other mountaineers and yeah. uh, climbers, and um, and I was also asking him how exactly do you like these these roots? They they um, rate them. This is a five nine. This is a five ten. This is a five twelve. These you know more difficult roots. Um, and, and I was asking him how that happens out in the. I mean, I understand in a climbing wall in a gym, they just figure it out. And sure, this one's harder. But um, but out in the middle of nowhere, um, on some Peruvian face that takes you a week to get to, mm-hmm. I mean, who really can say that's a five eleven versus a five twelve? And he laughed and he said, "It's just like surfing." I said, "No." And he said, "Yes." And 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 these super macho, incredible climbers will just say, "Ah, that was a five ten. And you get there and you think, "This is not." Yeah, it's like yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. saying that that triple over redway was six feet. You know, yeah, so it's exactly. the exact same thing. Right. Which made me laugh and made me think those guys are a little more like us than totally. Than but if you're in the know, uh, you know exactly how that system works. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Like, And of course, they called this a five ten, and it's, it's harder than any five twelve yeah. I ever did. But I do know what you mean. If you said it was six feet, I yeah. know what you really mean. Yeah, you know, yeah. and how six foot is different at Newport than it is at Pipe or yeah. whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, in the sake of time, I'll give you a couple like final questions. Um, talking about the evolving role of surfing in your life, what role does surfing play for you now, and how often do you surf? And, mm-hmm. Uh, well, I live in New York City, and I surf around there, especially this time of year, mm-hmm. uh, fall and winter. It's when it's best. Um, and uh, it depends on the waves, depends on my schedule. Um, when I'm in a good rotation, surf once or twice a week. You know, really just go in the window when the winds are right and there's a swell. Yeah. And often, it, you know, there's nothing to surf around there. Um, and I travel for work a fair amount, and some trips lend themselves to, you know, kind of surf detours um i was just in bali ostensibly for work um not reporting but at a at a writer's festival and so i surfed my brains out of a couple of good um back-to-back late season swells you know october november um so i surfed a lot um and i almost every trip that's anywhere near the coast i managed to like i got in the water yesterday here in southern california even though it was terrible but just i'm here i gotta get in the water yeah um, which means a lot of borrowed boards, uh, that kind of thing. And I take dedicated surf trips still at least a couple times a year. Oh, do you? Yeah, I, was in, I did a trip to Baja this summer. Um, some friends do an annual winter camping trip in Baja that I'll try to go on this year. I don't know. I also I got, got a couple of gigs. In, my sister lives in Hawaii, and I make sure to visit her every winter. She lives on Oahu. Perfect. And, um, and sometimes I've got a teaching gig in February this year on Oahu, so I'll go a couple weeks and surf a lot for those i'll take boards um, cool although oahu is always tricky like whether to take a gun mm-hmm. especially when it's still winter um and and i usually don't because it's such a pain to lug and with with uh, i have a gun but i you like with a rental car on the roof right. and if you take a short board out then somebody might steal your board 
a nice old brewer that I've got. It's sort of a classic that somebody might want, and um, and it doesn't fit. In the so I don't take it. And then every time I'm sorry, you know, it gets big, and all I have is my small board, and and I go out and get killed or whatever. Um, so I think you talked about that board in the book, right? You bought it off the rack. Yeah, in I New York, it. maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw. It's funny. I I I resisted. Um, I lived in San Francisco and surfed Ocean Beach and, and you know there were days when you certainly needed a gun and, and I was instead having to borrow one it's like resisting it. I don't want to own a gun I don't mm-hmm. want to be obliged to go out when it's huge and then I was moved to New York and, and uh, wasn't surfing too much it was just sort of taking surf trips and not surfing locally and then I met this guy who was um, in Montauk a lot we started surfing reef breaks in Montauk and, and really got on well and then we made a plan to go to Madeira Mm. And um, which was then pretty un like our first trip we never saw another surfer so it was just just you know hadn't been publicized at all as Madeira but we did been a, a an article in the mags that we'd you know incredible photos and right Evan Slater and those guys the yeah. first first real um, you know surf photo trip to Madeira but they hadn't named it but it was easy to figure out where it was and so Peter Spacek and I as my friend um, were going there. And we knew it'd be big, and and we just happened to be in a shop on Long Island, and here was this 8.0 Brewer gun, like a really nice looking board, and, and he said, "Buy it, buy it," and I just yes, and just sort of like bought it off the rack. I'm thinking, what's this doing on Long Island? On Long Island, you would never need that board in this life, um, and uh, and I've never ridden it on Long Island, but took it to Madeira, needed it all the time. I went yeah. there for eight or nine years. Um, yeah, I loved that segment of the book as well. Oh, good. Well, yeah. and there I really needed a gun. In fact, there were days when I needed a much bigger gun. Yeah. And, um, uh, so it was kind of a step for me. So I still have that board, and um, but I don't usually take it. I, I went to Puerto Escondido a couple years ago and really, really wished I'd brought it. Yeah. Um, I broke my board twice and, and you know, short board and and, and I just I just wished so I could like get in earlier. Not yeah. even on big days, like six foot days, I would have ridden the gun if I'd had it. Um, just to get in earlier. Yeah. It's so punishing and so hard to take off, and so crowded. Yeah. Um, at six foot, when it's bigger, it's not so crowded. But um, anyway, so I do these surf trips, um, and um, sometimes combining them with work, and and often just you know kind of going with a couple friends and. Go to Puerto Rico in the winter nice. now and swells. Um, I'm sort of watching already for the first good Puerto Rico swell. Good. You're still far more active of a surfer than most people are in their prime. So, well, I'm, good for you. I'm chasing it, but man, I'm getting old. It gets harder and harder. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, when I, for me, the role has evolved in that for a long time, number of waves caught was very important to me you know Mm -hmm. and like improving my Mm -hmm. surfing on those Mm -hmm. waves was very important to me Mm -hmm. and now it's almost irrelevant it's Mm kind of like um paddling out is good enough just (laughs) like if i'm there when the sun's coming up and i get in the water i feel great and if i happen to catch waves which i always do even better you know and um that's a good attitude how old are you 34 uh, yeah. you got a good mature attitude already wow. well you, I still haven't got that and I'm 63 <laughs> well you went out at Sano yesterday when I wouldn't have surfed so you're this was just to like put out a marker it was yeah, like I, ancient I, friends it was the first place I'd ever surfed I hadn't been there in decades yeah so it was just kind of catch a few well but but I I still have the thing of of I can't expect to improve I get worse every year yeah 
but I a couple of weeks ago that that picture I just showed you um, we saw a pretty big padang padang um, and uh, and only a couple of us going on the sets so it was yeah it was there were some people out but nobody wanted the bombs and right. so it was there if you wanted it and I was on this little borrowed board and. And I wasn't serving well. The takeoffs are pretty easy, surprisingly right. easy, and then it just goes really hollow and shallow as you go down the reef. Yeah. And 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 I was I didn't get hurt. Luckily, um, I never got like like lip axed in the flat. I always managed to stay up on the way, but I was getting just obliterated. You yeah. Know? And I knew. I mean, these are big, wide open barrels. I mean, I and I think I'm physically capable of like hanging on in there and coming out. But I would have had to really figure out the angles and, yeah. and, and you know, just really sack up and grab the rail and have the right angle to get out of that wave. And I was thinking, I gotta, I gotta surf this place a lot. I gotta just, you know, if I had enough time here and I didn't get hurt, I could actually do this. Yeah. And I'm, you know, 63. What am I, what am I thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, no, you should, a couple of ways, you know, yeah. de- declare a victory and get out of there. Yeah. Um, so I'm still in that thing of, I'm gonna get better. I'm gonna learn how to. Well, I think that that is one of the benefits of experience with surfing is that you can handle bigger waves. Like you said, most guys weren't even going on those waves. Mm. You really don't think twice and you can handle the paddling a little bit better. Your body wears down, but for some reason you get more effective in your paddling technique maybe or duck diving technique or wipeout technique, you know, where you think that you would get more hurt from those wipeouts. I feel like the older I get bothers me less yeah i can maybe relax more or something. i think yeah i've got a little more relaxed in in bigger ways is what it is yeah um, exactly i i don't panic as as i mean i haven't panicked much at all in in recent years and i've been in some bigger ways ways that it would have panicked me at 30 exactly you know i would have thought oh my god this is well i've got a slightly better attitude now that doesn't always serve i mean I can't hold my breath as long. Okay. I realized that last year at Makaha, I went out on a short board on a day when it was like strictly guns. Okay. Uh, big Makaha bowl. Really clean. Really, really good. Um, but I was really struggling. I was dropping in late. I was airdropping. It was the only way I could get in. And uh, and I eventually kind of moved in to try and catch some smaller waves in a bad, in a dangerous spot. And I got caught by a big set. Really. Yeah. Not by a big like outside deep water set by a but by a set that really, really drove me to the bottom. And and uh, and I thought I'd be okay. I stayed relaxed, but I completely ran out of air twice okay. under a couple of ways where I just thought I should be fine. I'm not fine. I had to wow. climb my leash in way too soon up into the full turbulence. And wow. So you got, I've got to get a hold of myself. <laughs> yeah, you'll always, I, I suppose, in light of everything I just said, you always end up getting humbled at some point <laughs> yeah. by Mother Nature. Yeah. <laughs> Inevitable, especially in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, do you plan to write any more about surfing? No, I don't. Okay. Although I get offers now with this book out there. Like if I go next month, I'll go on assignment. Someone will pay my way to, to write something. Yeah. And um, I really don't want to do it. It's just the surf that's dragging me in that direction. Totally. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to buckle down and work and say, no, no, don't take this kind of fluffy assignment um, just so you can surf but um, (laughs) jury's out I might do it I was going to say you answered that question no and then gave a long explanation (laughs) for how you probably will end up writing about surfing again Exactly. I have a feeling we'll see more if not that trip shortly thereafter Mm. Um, final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode 
ah, yesterday, um, I some I don't even know whose it was. They just handed me a longboard at uh, it was long. It felt like maybe nine six at, at San Onofre. Uh, I don't even know who made it. I think it said Walden on it. Yeah, Walden. Okay, Ventura. County. Okay, yeah. So I was on a like a nine six Walden at San Onofre yesterday. Cool, <laughs> very cool. Well. For listeners, again, the theme that we've been discussing of how the role of surfing evolves in someone's life, um, you actually kind of pick apart the subject of evolving onto a longboard in the book. There's, you know, kind of a detailed experience of surfing in New York on a longboard, reluctantly giving up kind of the shortboard, not permanently, but just in that surf session. Well, I haven't actually... um I don't own a longboard, and and there are many days, small days in yeah, New York, totally. winter days are small. It's such a, I mean, I just could barely surf a shortboard on it when it's right. small in the winter, and and I said I've got to get a longboard. This is ridiculous. I could be having a lot of fun, um, but I just haven't done it. I have all these excuses, you know. But the main thing is I just don't want to do it. Yeah, uh, I don't want to own. I don't want to be that guy who's ah, now he's on a longboard. Right. Um, and but you know apartments are small and cars and the subway and the airport and all these reasons I have to not lug around a longboard. Um, your your depiction of that dilemma in the book mm. was totally relatable. Yeah, well, it's like the age thing, you know. Eventually, exactly. and I have old friends who say, "Get a longboard, man! You're just you know." Yeah. But um, I'm not riding like a five ten. No, you know, my no. my bread and butter board now is a seven two rusty quad. Oh, you know, okay. It's a solid board. Um, but it, it, you know, duck dive's fine. It's 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 still shortboard for me. Right. And and uh, but you know, a couple of years it'll be a couple inches longer. And, yep. Yeah. You know, totally. Headed in that direction. Awesome. Well, thank you. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Absolutely. Bye. Thanks. Visit surfsplendorpodcast.com. We have a link to purchase Barbarian Days. We have photos of the various waves and travels that we discussed in this episode. We also have links to Finnegan's two New Yorker pieces on Mark Renneker. Um, I also encourage you to leave a comment in the comments section of today's show on our website. I'll make sure to pass it along to William, Bill, as I can now affectionately refer to him. Um, we also have all past 112 episodes of Surf Splendor archived on our website for you to listen to for free. Feel free to follow us on social media at Surf Splendor. Tag your friends in our posts to help us grow. That is it for this episode. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to enjoy your Christmas. Make sure to catch a couple of waves during your time off and shred on, my loyal listeners. Shred on.